Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. War, celebrity, tragic death, secret London streets, and a family dynasty of map makers. Yes, this week's episode really does have everything. We're off to Long Acre in the West End to find out what's behind the name of the map company Stanford's. Oh, and you'll spot it. It's about six or seven minutes in. I mentioned Charing Cross in the context of a rail crash. I, of course, meant uh, Clapham Junction. Anyway, maps at the ready. Pith helmets on. Let's go and explore this particular facet of London. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before. Just a stone throw from your front door. Hey baby, step out me. See things of the air, land, and sea. Some creep, some saw. Down the road, jam brand store. My heart aches for some far off Well, hello, hello. Explore, discover, inspire are the words on the wall next to me here at Stamford's. We're on Long Acre, which is just between Leicester Square and Covent Garden. And the name Stamford's might be familiar to you, or you might have yet to discover what Stamford's is. With me to tell us exactly that is David Mantero. He's the senior buyer at Stamford's. Hi, David. Hello, how are you? Yeah, very good. For those who are uninitiated, what does Stamford's do? Well, Stanford is the largest map and travel bookshop in possibly the world. Perhaps not in size, uh, but certainly in the uh, range of stock and the, the weights of items we carry on. And uh, yeah, well, we help travelers and we sell maps and guidebooks and other accessories. We're big fans of a map on this show, and I'm hoping that we can explore different ways of conceptualising space, and uh, perhaps particularly London as we head along. But one of the things that Stanford's is renowned for is having an interesting history. It's one of those stores that goes way back, like uh, Harrods, so we're going to be digging into that too. I wonder if we should start by sketching out what's here and what's going on, how many floors, what's on sale, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, yes, uh, so we have um, three floors. And uh, basically, we divide it slightly in a um, geographical way, very loosely. <laughs> uh, so when you come in, you find first London and local interest and um, books on the UK and full selection of um, ordnance survey maps. And then we have other things like children's and accessories, as I said, and some stationery. Um, then if you go upstairs which is where we are now. <laughs> um, we have a um, historical map section, but also we have what we call the European section, which is um, maps and books on France, Italy, Spain. Well, you know what Europe is. <laughs> and then also, quite important, um, here upstairs on the first floor, we have what we call the digital section, where we can print maps on demand, uh, because basically we are agents of the Ordnance Survey, and we have access to the database. Uh, in fact, we are the oldest agents of um, Ordnance Survey in the country. We have been since 1863. Anyway, <laughs> so here upstairs you can get maps printed of um, any location in the UK with your house in the middle, any scale, 
Um, it's things that people use for planning applications, but also for decoration, um, gifts, um, anything. Well, there's, there's, in fact, as we speak, there's a map of the world being churned out there. <laughs> yeah, in one of those enormous plotters, yes. Um, it is quite exciting, actually, uh, to see the maps coming out. And, uh, uh, no, ordnance Survey, my loose understanding of that, well, it's got something to do historically with figuring out where to put artillery and weapons and so forth. It sort of evolved from that, I think. Uh, yes, yes, uh, basically, and in fact... Um, um, in the UK, the, the, um, the name is still reflects that, um, but in other countries, um, it's still the army, the only people that are allowed to, to map those countries. That's particularly so with um, Turkey, Greece, um, even in Spain, it's still, even though there's now um, a civilian survey, the, um, the army is still very much involved in, in actually taking the measurements and, and doing the, um, the actual groundwork. Um, that's, that's quite remarkable, isn't it? Well, I suppose um, in some cases it was um, it first started as a, as a question of security because obviously you know the lay of the land is is a, is a very important strategical <laughs> um, advantage that a country could have in, in terms of you know, if there was conflict. Um, but um, I think with time, what's happened is that the resources necessary to map a whole country and keep it updated and constantly uh, surveying. Um, that's really expensive, and um, and the army, as it happens, um, thankfully, is not been very busy in the last few years in, uh, well, in they, Europe. They would love to hear you say that. <laughs> uh, so they've had, um, you know, um, it's, it's a use to give to them, and uh, you know, it, which is, I suppose, good for the country and and, um, and everybody. Well, that, that fighting I guess <laughs> better than fighting yeah. <laughs> yes. it, it does surprise me because well, I mean I was I was going to, to leave this until perhaps later on in the conversation but it seems to me that technology is moving ahead of pace and there must be whilst I can understand it's a difficult detailed job it must be uh, that there are other companies out there with you know, satellite technology or whatever who are able to map things increasingly easily Yes, of course. Yeah, it's um, it's just only when it comes to to the closer detail, when even at, at the level of uh, of you know civil engineering of, of uh, new buildings, small buildings, even vegetation, things like that. Uh, it's it, sometimes you need a double to double check and actually see exactly what's there. I mean, the satellite can give you quite a lot, and in fact, that's most of the mapping nowadays for for people. But they still need to do some surveying of. Um, as you say, it's really changed a lot in, in recent years. But there's some countries that are really, really behind at the same time. So uh, lots of things are still almost made by hand. Um, we, not uh, quite, but... Yeah. <laughs> we will certainly be coming back to that, I think, because there's a big conversation there. One of the things that struck me, and of course we've been in contact as we've been setting up the interview and so forth, there are some organisations where you can tell that they're extremely used to having people with microphones wandering in and out all the time. I get the impression that it's not quite so much the case here and I wonder whether that's an accurate perception and whether that's a, a choice on the part of the company. Well, there's, there's been in the past some filming crews and, and we get, it's just perhaps um, as a bookseller um, we are, and uh, my colleagues and me we are quite shy and uh, introverted and uh, it's not our Strength, perhaps, uh, public speaking. <laughs> uh, but no, I mean, uh, talking about um, film crews, um, famously, um, um, Around the World in 80 Days with Michael Palin started here at Stanford. Um, oh. So the beginning, the opening of that, of that series um, was Michael Palin choosing maps for his journey um, here. And we very often, as I said, um, there's film crews filming just pieces of the news in front of a particular map. Um, 
but yes, as I said, it's not normally us that appear in the in the, in the films. Because people prefer to see Michael Palin, I guess. <laughs> if I remember rightly, I think I remember that uh, Michael Palin's journey was due to end with them coming back from, I, th- I want to say, Southampton on a train that ended up being involved in the Charing Cross rail disaster. And, and it was uh, by some small uh, piece of luck that they decided not to be on that train. I don't know if my memory's uh, working properly there or not. And that's interesting that you identify as, uh, as booksellers, and clearly a portion of what you sell is books, but a lot of what we're surrounded by at the moment are those kind of foldable maps that fathers have spread over their dashboard on uh, family holidays. Yes, no, I, I suppose bookselling is a, it, it's a name. And in fact, uh, this is a really good point. Um, it happens really often to me that um, outside work, I, I describe myself as a bookseller. Or I say, when people ask, what do you do? I, I say, oh, I work in a bookshop in Covent Garden. And um, people will put a, put a face and say, which one? And I say, Stanford's, they don't always understand the name or recognize the name. Um, but if I say the map shop, they always say, oh, yes, yes. <laughs> so so you, you really touch a point. And in fact, yes, I mean, we are all passionate about maps, and that's what drove most of us here. And in fact, guidebooks were a fairly recent thing fairly recent I say because of, of the history of the company being 160 years but I'm probably talking about 1930s <laughs> Oh right as recently as that <laughs> what, what is it about maps because it does seem to me that uh, maps do ignite a passion in certain people and uh, I mean I enjoy a map as much as the next man but uh, and it is men particularly I think I don't know if that's a fair understanding of it certainly we've had mapping exhibitions as part of Londonist we often speak to UCL and their department that deals with representations of space what is it about maps that you're into? I can't. Good question. I suppose apart from being a representation of, of space and things as much a they say a lot about the people that made them and and the society that created them and um, I just find it really interesting looking at a map to, and trying to understand the person or the society that was that you know that map came from and, and all the ideas and, and, and personalities that are behind all these maps and in fact you can see lots of maps that are less concerned with the accuracy of the representation that he made but it's more about sims and uh, I'm also really interested on, on those kind of maps which are not necessarily about geography or not about physical geography but much more about maybe a social geography or a, you know a, even a personal level there's, there's some about I saw recently a map somebody made about which shows the distances in walking minutes from somebody's house to all the things that he does. And I thought it was fascinating. <laughs> That's a great idea. I remember there was, I saw a map of the world, uh, the title of it was something like Map of the World as Seen by English People. And you've got England as this enormous country in the middle of the globe, and then right next to it, the USA, and then a very long way away, uh, France, uh, <laughs> tiny and distant. Uh, <laughs> But maybe we need to develop that idea a little bit more, though, because what we started out by saying was uh, we, we were talking about ordnance survey and military mapping, and that seems very different from what you've just described with personalities being infused into it. So how does that work? How does that mismatch get explained? Well, the funny thing is that uh, personalities have always been involved in mapping and maps. Uh, and in fact, recently somebody showed me a, a map of the uh, one of the ordnance survey maps where um, the the person that drew it actually wrote his name. It's, um, it's slightly hidden. It's, um, it's, um, it's written where basically what he's used is um, the symbols that you use to put rocks on the uh, on the coastline. He's actually turned them into his name. 
and uh, you have to look at it upside down. But, I mean, all these things happen in the most serious maps. And in fact, the army and, and people like that use things like this to, um, to take care of their copyright. Um, there is the streets that don't exist in most A to Zs and, and street maps in the, in the world. And it's basically a way that map makers have to control to see who is using their mapping without um, paying the price, I suppose. That's incredible. Yes, no, it's, uh, it's when I was first told, it, it's fascinating, actually. Do we know of any roads in London that don't exist? Well, the things changes, but yes, uh, actually, what you have to do is come here to Stanford and, and maybe ask one of my colleagues <laughs> and spend some time on the, the... We have a big, big map of, the, of London in the floor downstairs, which is worth visiting. And, and perhaps if you ask one of our colleagues we can find one of the uh, small cul-de-sacs that actually are not there. <laughs> wow, OK. And what about you? You've been here something like 10 years. Yes, it, it was 10 years last September, I think. Yes, no, um, i originally from Spain, probably can't tell, <laughs> from Malaga. And, um, yes, I arrived to London about 13 years ago, and um, at, at some point uh, <coughs> I had a friend that was working here, and... Uh, and I was really interested and, and passionate on maps and um, started in the post room. <laughs> and, um, um, yes, so ten years after. Yeah. Now you're the senior by <laughs> Well, yes. What, what, is it, what does that involve, then? What's your day-to-day? Well, basically, it's um, sort of controlling the stock and um, making sure that we have what we need to have and choosing books and, and I suppose, curating the selection of, um, of items that we have but also making sure that we don't run short of, of important things that you know, our customers need. Yes, one of the things that struck me, and it should have been obvious, I don't know why it wasn't, is, is that this is a seasonal game. Um, really, really, really much so. And, um, and in fact, um, um, it happens generally to retailers that for them December and November, sort of the Christmas period, represents a huge proportion of what they do. Um, which is not quite so much for us because we do have the element of uh, June, July and August um, really high peak on, um, on maps and, and travel books and uh, as you can imagine, and it's holiday time So so, so this is the bulk of that business then is people who are going away and they grab a map as they go rather than kind of planning and we're well ahead or something Well no, the thing is that I suppose there's two elements to it um, what happens in summer is that the, the traveler that we get is more um, short haul as we call it um, so people are going to France or Spain or, which perhaps doesn't need that much preparation because they are familiar with the place or they've been before they even might have a house there or, and they just come to pick bits and pieces just maybe a, a week or two weeks before they go and then in November and October you see the uh, long haul traveler where, which actually starts before it starts in, in September probably um, people are starting to look at maybe when they're going to go in December to India or, or Thailand or, or anywhere really <laughs> so yes uh, it is really much seasonal and, uh, but there's two, even within that seasonality there's a different elements so we have peaks both in, in winter and in summer but they're completely different travellers and oh. have different needs. Kind of. So the profile of your customers is evolving over the year? Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh. Or potentially they're the same people, in fact. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Seems to be, oh, I could be completely wrong, but the kind of place that inspires loyalty among its customers. Do you, do you have a lot of people who are in here all the time? 
Yes, yes, very much so. Some of them even famous. <laughs> uh, well, well, you've given me the perfect lead-in because I was looking through your list of renowned traveller customers. I'll let you do the bragging. <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't want to have also either expose people or anything like that. Well, most of them are dead, the ones I was looking at, in fairness. <laughs> yes, of course, yeah. Well, I mean, um, in that sense, um, Stanford has really close relationship with people like Scott or, um, you know, Captain Scott. And um, there's, there's even um, correspondence between him and the founder of the company, Edward Stanford, um, talking about maps of the expedition and, and how, in fact, Scott took exception because um, Shackleton's name was also mentioned in the same map and he didn't think it had to be. And <laughs> that's actually quite funny in a way. But there's, there's been other people, Florence Nightingale, um, and again, there's correspondence and there's, uh, who else? I saw Amy Johnson on the list. Yes. Anyway, and, and closer to the day, closer to now, we've seen um, Bill Clinton here. We've seen um, <laughs> Brad Pitt. We've seen we see Michael Penny very often. He works very near here, <laughs> and um, Nicholas Crane and Paul Theroux. Basically, if anybody's in, is just you know, remotely interested in travel, they, they tend to pass through here. There's one uh, contentious name on the list. Uh, Sherlock Holmes. Mm. <laughs> Surely we have a problem with that claim. <laughs> yes, um, and in fact, he himself didn't make it here, <laughs> even in, um, in figurative terms. Um, now, now, why is he on your website as being a customer? Yes, uh, well, basically, in the, um, the Hound of the Baskervilles, uh, there is a section where Sherlock Holmes sends um, one of his kids, um, street kids, to buy some maps from Stanford's. For him to go to the um, to the malls and you know, huh. sort of a high, very detailed map of um, of, of the malls and uh, so yes, uh, that, that's basically where the claim from comes from. Uh, so so yes, Stanford is mentioned in the uh, Hound of the Baskervilles and I guess in the manner of speaking, um, Sherlock Holmes shop here. Yes, <laughs> that's pretty impressive credentials. <laughs> it is. It is. Um, uh, it's. I'm pretty sure the name of Stanford is appearing in other books, um, other fiction. Recently, I can think of. Um, her Fearful Symmetry by um, the writer that wrote um, The Time Traveller's Wife, Nifnega. Audrey? Audrey Nifnegger, yeah. yeah. And um, she's, she's a big fan of the, of the shop. And uh, she so the shop appears in, uh, is mentioned in, the, in her second book, which actually is based in London. Uh, yeah. I want to know what Florence Nightingale wanted a map of, do we know? Uh, we'll have to find out. Um, <laughs> no, no, actually, I don't. Mm. I don't know now. That takes us back a long way. I mean, that, that must be getting on to the earliest days of the, the store. How, how did the store get established? Yeah, well, basically, um, Idola started in 1853, basically about 161 years ago. To start with, it actually, um, there was somebody else called Saunders who had a station as a map shop in um, what's now really Trafalgar Square. But at the time, was still part of the Strand. And then the then young Edward Stanford um, sort of joined the company with him, just working as a, a cartographer. And, um, um, and then soon transpired that Saunders wanted to sell and, and move on. And then Stanford's establishing those premises. As I said, that's 1853. And then quite quickly, actually, um, Stanford's um, established himself as a name for... Um, maps and map making and uh, and in fact he started what I just mentioned earlier, this partnership with um, Order and Survey where 
Stanford was actually the um, the sole agent of Order and Survey. So if anybody, even other shops, wanted to buy Order and Survey maps, they had to buy them through Stanford's. It's dangerously close to being a monopoly, isn't it? Yes. Um, I think the problem was more that at the time the Order and Survey wasn't interested in getting involved with trade. So they didn't want to have a, a commercial arm, so to speak. So they made the maps... And that was as much as they wanted to get involved in it. They, they needed somebody to distribute the maps for them and, and take them around. It is. Uh, it, it did create a lot of overtime. Not at the beginning. But over time, other people started to say that it was. Yeah, I mean, complain that it was a monopoly and and uh, it was against free trade, etc. But as I say, it started more because of a necessity. That brings up a couple of ideas for me. One of them is that 53, that must be round about the time of the railways appearing, mustn't it? Was, did, was that sort of influencing uh, the, the growth in, in maps? Yes, yes, in fact, um, um, I also for, I forgot to say that, I was going to say, um, and that's why um, Stanford actually, the business that Stanford started became so successful so quickly. Um, it's, it's because of the basically how the Victorian society was and, and, and all the advances that were happening. But yes, it's basically having the railways meant the, the travelling and the people, the kind of trips that before maybe somebody had to organise with uh, coaches and, and months ahead and that kind of thing suddenly was available for everybody and quite um, affordably. And, and it meant that you could cover more terrain in less time. But also it, the idea that the world was closer to hand um, just aroused curiosity in people. And, uh, and there were more narratives of places and, and, and voyages and people having been to places. And uh, so I think, in general, the society suddenly was interested in maps and, and, and books about travelling and, and faraway places and that kind of thing. Oh, right, yes, because the Victorian explorer is a character that we all recognise. And, of course, Stanford was establishing his business next to the, one of the big rail hubs at Charing Cross. Of course, yes. In fact, uh, I think at the time, Trafalgar Square and Charing Cross was a hub in general for um, not just travelling, but I think politics and, and basically all the societies, royal societies near there. The, um, um, it was basically a great place to be at the time. The other question, of course, is if that was the period when Ordnance Survey started licensing Stanford's, what was the general public using by way of uh, finding their way around before then? Well, what happens, um, Stanford's wasn't really the only um, map maker at the time, nor, nor was the um, Ordnance Survey. Uh, there were other people, like names that we still recognise, like Phillips or Bartholomew. Phillips was a um, map maker based in... Liverpool, I believe, and uh, Bartholomew was in Edinburgh, but they all made different maps of different parts of the country and uh, cities and places like that. And even before that, there were other map makers. Were they stitching them together? I mean, presumably if people couldn't get around as easily or or get as far, then there wouldn't be as much need, but was anybody stitching them into maps of the entire country or anything like that at that point? Actually, to be honest, I I, I wouldn't know. It'd be be interesting to get to... to I can't imagine there'd be a requirement because nobody's going to be driving up to Scotland or something, are they? Yes, no, I mean, it would be more like, I suppose, for general interest. And uh, um, John Ruskin, um, John Ruskin writing to Stanford, says, Gentlemen, have you any school atlas or any other sort of atlas on sale at present without railroads in its maps? Of all the entirely other stupidities of modern education, railroads in maps are the infinitely oddest to my mind. <laughs> Ever your faithful servant and victim, John Ruskin. <laughs> what was his beef? <laughs> uh, well, basically, uh, I suppose it's, um, he was... Um, by that time, he had retired to the countryside and, and he pretty much saw the... Uh, rail travel and, and the rails as 
an intrusion into um, you know the quiet beautiful British landscape uh, I suppose. So this is a grumpy old man in Buckinghamshire fed up with HS2 But it does show that there is uh, there were maps and (laughs) map making before the railways came and uh, yes, and demand for it I suppose Well, we've got the life story of Stanford's as a business and, and indeed the remainder of uh, Mr. Stanford's life to come. We'll also be talking about digitization and uh, digital methods of finding your, your way around and war and uh, all of that coming up in the second part of today's show, which we interrupt for a message from our sponsor. Having an annual travel card is good. Your travel is sorted for the year with no queuing at ticket offices, no getting caught out with an expired ticket and a hefty discount on buying monthly tickets. Plus, there are other benefits, like cheaper UK rail travel and two-for-one deals on London stuff. However, not all of us have employers who can give us a season ticket loan, and few of us can afford to pay thousands of pounds up front to get one. Now there is another way. Commuter Club gives you access to the big discounts offered by annual travel cards, while keeping all the flexibility of buying monthly tickets. Join Commuter Club, and you'll make 11 payments at the same cost as a monthly travel card, including their 5.6% interest rate, for a full year of travel. Best of all, with Commuter Club, there is no lock-up or cancellation fees. So, what will you do with the money you save? Find out more and sign up to start saving at www.commuterclub.co.uk forward slash Londonist. You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm in Quentin Wolf. I'm with David Mantero, who's the senior buyer here at Stamford's. And, well, we've been uh, talking while the commercial was playing about historical mapping. And, David, not really your bag, the historical mapping. So y- your focus is very much on the more modern. And by, by more modern, we're talking the last 150 or so years. <laughs> I've got one mapping anecdote and only one mapping anecdote. I don't know whether this is apocryphal, but I've got a story about, the word, you know, the word dicey which can mean when something's unreliable or untrustworthy or something like this. And my understanding is that that comes from the maps made by a a map maker called Dice. And this was back in the day, I'm not sure how many hundred years we're going back, but it was uh, probably before we knew about the entire shape of America. So, you know, there'd be monsters here and those kind of details on the map. But apparently his maps were notoriously unreliable. So if something was unreliable, it was dicey. So there we go. That's my map fact for the day. Um, let's come to the more modern history of mapping. And we started the story of the company in 1853, and we were down in Charing Cross. Well, I suppose the question is, what happened next? Yes, well, basically, um, so that was the first Edward Stanford. Um, there were, in fact, two, um, father and son. And um, so the first Edward Stanford retired in the year 1885, I think. And then Edward Stanford Jr., I suppose, um, took over from him and um, and those actually were the um, really the, the heyday of Stanford and um, as it was indeed the best part of the uh, um, Victorian Britain and, and you know, there were prosperous times and eventually um, Stanford had to move twice uh, because of the changing landscape of, um, of what now is actually um, Oh, Admiralty Arch? Yeah, Admiralty Arch. Well, basically, that's where the site of um, the original Stanford was. And uh, so they had to move. And then um, eventually they moved to um, a site very near there um, in what's Cockpool Street. Um, you can still see the building uh, that Stanford's commissioned. Um, it's above, um, I think it's Garfunkel's now or something like that. Uh, but the building still cons- the, has all the, um, the details that Stanford had commissioned for it. So there's um, Atlas holding the globe and... 
um, is actually quite beautiful. Um, what was the quick visit? So then the Stanford prospered and, and was based pretty much until 1901. All throughout that time, because of the relationship with Southern and Survey and the amount of stock that Stanford had to keep to be a um, um, distributor for them, Edward Stanford had the second of junior. Um, purchased some buildings in what is where we are now basically um, in Longacre but back in back then it wasn't really um, a commercial street in any possible way uh, so he had basically the printing house and um, and some warehouse in in this very site pretty much and eventually when he had he was forced to move again from um, Cockburn Street because I think the building was forcibly purchased by um, the London Authority at the time um, to have their offices, I believe. Stanford had no option, and they moved here, uh, which at the time was seen as a, as a difficult um, move, in a way, because, as I said, this wasn't really a, a commercial street, and uh, it was pretty much, a, I believe, is where people used to uh, make carts and sell carts, and there were showrooms for, for you know, handsomes and, and, and that kind of thing. So that, oh, that must have uh, risked destroying the business. It was it was um, it was a difficult decision, I believe, and uh, and but it seems like by then Stanford had this um, reputation and and following and and loyalty from its customers that decided to come here and and turn into the place to be, and and so not being in Cockburn Street wasn't that important anymore. I suppose if there's one customer base that you would uh, want if you're going to a slightly out-of-the-way location, it would be travellers. Yes, and explorers, and yeah. people that can find their way. <laughs> so, I mean, maybe I'm uh, jumping to conclusions here but then, but to what extent was having Stanford's in this street responsible for the street being what it is now? Is it, is it too much of a leap to suggest that some of this other stuff grew up around it? It's... Possibly, um, it is difficult. <laughs> I wouldn't uh, because it obviously, obviously, because also lots of things change and and it changed again and changed again. I think the war probably has a lot to do with that too. I think in a way, Stanford actually was lucky to be here. The way things pan out in the end, in the last twenty years, before the last twenty years, it was it was this area was still actually not that commercially wasn't that popular. I, I wouldn't say, um, you know, when when the Oh, maybe I should say 30 years <laughs> when the market was still the market and uh, you know it, it wasn't really the shopping destination that, that you have now You mentioned the war, which war are we referring to? Well both wars I suppose <laughs> basically the f- first war um, in a way the, something strange happened with the Stanford and uh, in that both wars were really really terrible for the Stanford at two levels one of them was business which it was I'm sure for everybody um, because because of all the restrictions and all the um, and, and the men that couldn't be here and you know the disruption to travel in particular that was bad for Stanford but also um, as it happens on, during the First World War is when Edward Stanford Jr. died just on the last year of the war before the um, before the actual end of it and as it happens his son that took over died the year before the end of the Second World War. And um, both, both of those things really marked the history of the company in a way. Firstly, because I think the second as well as Stanford probably was the last family member that was properly really interested in mapping and, and cartography. And um, it would seem that his sons were much more military men. And, uh, and in fact, they all fought in the, in the, 
in the Great War, and uh, they all survived, luckily enough, even though being in the you know in the front and and everything. But then once the um, Edward Stanford Jr. died. His son took over, but it really became obvious that it wasn't his main interest to, to, to be a, a businessman, I suppose, really. Although he did a good job, and he managed to keep a Stanford going until the Second World War came about. Um, this is um, C.K. Stanford, I think. Um, yeah, what's his name? Or I think it was Colonel Stanford. <laughs> Sorry, C- Colonel Stanford. Colonel Stanford, I think. That's what they call him here. <laughs> really? <laughs> In the shop. Um, and the thing is, he was... Um, I said that he wasn't interested in cartography, but that's not true in a way. I mean, he was interested in cartography, but much more in a, from a military point of view. Um, so he assisted the government in mapping the really secret maps he was making from a, from a cell in jail. Um, he was going there in the evenings and closing himself in there and just mapping for the D-Day landings, basically. Uh, were, were there restrictions? I know um, that one of the things that the country did to try and foil any potential invasion was remove all the street signs. And I'm wondering how having a shop full of maps of the country uh, fared in that. Yep, not uh, full restriction on selling uh, maps of the country, yes. No, I mean, as I said, for the business, it was a terrible, terrible year during the war. Not just because of the disruption to travel and to, and to general trade, but because, in fact, it was forbidden to sell ordinary survey maps. And to make them available to other people. This company's had a hard time uh, at various points in its history. Well, I suppose um, it's a long history. So <laughs> and if you, if you live through two wars, uh, you're bound to have some hard time. <laughs> yeah, right. This was the colonel who died uh, just before the end of the Second War? Yes. Uh, and then his younger brother took over. Oh, hang on, hang on, though. Does that mean that he did or didn't get to witness the D-Day landings? He didn't, I'm afraid, no. Um, he didn't get to see... To witness, the, I suppose, what people did with his maps or, or the use that we were put to, um, which is a sad thing. And then his his brother took over, and, um, and his brother, who had fought also in the Second World War, actually in the front, um, by the time that he came back from the war, he really was not um, not just keen on, on being a businessman. He was actually not really keen on living in the... Uh, you know, living in the city and that kind of thing. He really wanted to move out and not have the responsibilities. And so um, that's a very important time in the company. I think it was 1950-51 when Stanford was basically sold to um, one of the uh, map-making companies that I mentioned before, um, Philips. Um, and that's a completely that inaugurates a completely different time for the history of Stanford and, and what Stanford becomes. Because until that point, really or perhaps until before the Second World War, Stanford was still a map maker, in essence, not just a map retailer or a travel shop or whatever we are now. But from the Second World War onwards, um, really the publishing program sort of stopped. Firstly, because there was no demand for it, but then, because as I said, the um, the... The sons of Edward Stanford weren't necessarily interested in, the, in in that in that world, and and perhaps didn't have the vision to drive the company through those times. And how long did Phillips continue to to own the firm? Yeah, well, then um, so Phillips owned the firm until 1980, I believe. That's got to be a good time, sort of 60s, 60s in particular. There was a lot of growth in holidays, wasn't there? Yes, um, yes, but perhaps not quite as strong as it 
then became with um, you know after the 70s and during the 80s and in fact I think possibly the um, the highest point was um, as recent as 2005 four when you know a really really cheap affordable airline first um, became widespread and and particular in European travel and short you know short breaks and the whole concept of um, all of that and I think that's when suddenly. I'm jumping here. I'm going too far ahead. <laughs> Maybe I should talk some about um, about those years. Uh, the, the well, I don't know. Um, not that I know that much about it. But, uh, <laughs> yes, it's. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I suppose um, during that time it was it was more European travel and and in fact the reason why Philips was in a position to um, to buy Stanford and the reason why Stanford sort of lost a bit influence or its its. Um, position in the mapping world is because they failed to realize that um, UK travel had become something really important and people like Philips and Bartholomew actually started creating county maps and, and city plans for the whole of the UK and uh, because in the post-war years um, I think UK travel was a thing. People weren't going to Europe quite so much. But then, um, as a result of this, you know, once uh, for a few years, Stanford perhaps was a bit lost after not being um, stopped being a map maker. But then it found its identity in being a supplier of maps, and um, and basically, without realizing, we, it became a, a, a hub of cartograph- uh, cartographic knowledge, I suppose. Um, where basically, uh, lots of people knew a lot about maps and and where to source them, and uh, and uh, I think nobody realized until it had happened that this was a place suddenly to, to come and find maps of anywhere that were very difficult to find anywhere else and uh, so the Stanford became a specialist in sourcing those kind of maps and uh, in getting travel books also and um, and narrative and, and it became kind of like a hub for travelers rather than a map maker which it had been before <clears throat> I suppose we can't really keep going down this road without hitting the question of the future I know we've got some of the the much more up-to-date history to talk about but the elephant in the room is uh, Google and those uh, maps that can appear on your phone and I'm working in literary fiction I'm very happy to support an industry that on paper doesn't uh, look like it should work or has got fierce competition from other things but what's been the effect on uh, business from those uh, sort of things Google Maps and so forth well it's um, it's difficult to tell in a way. I mean, it, it obviously I cannot say that it doesn't affect and um, it has a huge effect and in fact we've seen decline in, in sales of um, street plans um, that's completely undeniable um, I myself everybody I think you can't deny the um, how handy it is to have um, um, you know, your maps in your phone and you just check them whenever you want with your location on it and it's, it's, it's great, it's extremely useful um, the thing is, um, Google Maps and um, Google Earth and programs like that, I think, have had a double effect. So some people might not be mind maps so much because they can check things online, perhaps. But at the same time, I think it's fomented uh, some interest that perhaps wasn't there before um, people that might have never been exposed to maps now are exposed to maps and they might become a new generation of people that actually want to then see what the, the thing is, you know, the actual piece of paper or, 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 or even you know, come here and get something printed for them in the site centre or see what else is available, what used to be available you know, old maps of the places that they can look at now 
Um, so potential, the, the potential is that actually, well, we could think as an enemy. It, it, to an extent, it can be actually, um, yes, more supportive than you would think. Of. Yeah, that's... Uh, yes, because I suppose, and, and it's it's going to be enabling your uh, business to sell online and, and things like that. The, the, the other thing, and I, I say this, maybe I like physical object, I like paper, but part of that is because if your battery goes, or if you drop your tablet down a toilet or whatever, then suddenly whatever is, is on there is gone. Or if you've got no signal for whatever reason, paper thing can be quite handy, especially I guess if you're uh, travelling in a remote region yes no and, and not only that also um but the midlands or something. <laughs> yes yes <laughs> i was with break on beacon so <laughs> uh, no the thing is uh, um, one thing the maps give you that that sometimes um you know other devices don't is um is an overview of the context where you are um so when you look at a device you can see where you are and the very you know the, the points are very close to you in a map you, you can look at that because it's there uh, but you can also see all the you know where you are within the context of everything um, so you know you're driving from here to there but what's to your left or your right or what other places are close to you or you know have you passed next to the coast and you might not have even realized or you know I've met people that have been to um, Mallorca and, and didn't realize they were in an island. <laughs> what? <laughs> for real? Yes, for real. I mean, they weren't the, the most intelligent people in the world, but it's, I mean, it, that, it happened to them. And, um, you know, they, they were driving with, uh, with, in a car with, uh, you know, one of these GPS units things. And, uh, of course, the GPS unit doesn't, doesn't tell you that you're in an island. You, know, you just see the road ahead and, and, and there's always land. So. <laughs> Technology at work. So um, I must say also that, um, you know, we, we are not staying put and uh, we are actually investing in the future and, uh, and we have embraced the, uh, the present, I should say. Um, and we have a, a business-to-business division, which... Um, uh, what they've done is they're using digital mapping to create a service where um, if you have a company or a um, housing association or things like that, they can put data onto the maps and uh, use it to manage the businesses. And the, um, It's actually very clever and I hardly understand it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm struggling. To, what, what, sort of th- what sort of data might we be talking about? Uh, so basically, if, um, for a housing association, for example, um, so they buy a piece of data where all of the different buildings might be and then they can overlay with data on the costs on the repairs that are needed on the pretty much anything um, oh so this could be like those uh, booths poverty maps yes but in a very very modern way <laughs> where you have layers and layers um, within the same one map uh, that you can manipulate and, and change constantly yeah what else are you seeing in terms of innovation what are you seeing as as buyer that's coming through that's exciting you or is mapping a, a very very constant uh, area no, no no i mean it's um i think what i've seen recently funny enough is um, a revival of um old maps and um i think there's a nostalgic element in recent years um the, uh, the availability of, um, of antique mapping and uh, reproductions of um, of old maps like the boost poverty map that you just mentioned um, when I first started here in Stanford, um, very few people knew of the Booth Poverty Map, and and we would sell a couple of copies a day. Uh, but um, recently, it was in television, and uh, and it's it's got really really popular. But at the same time, um, 
there's hundreds of, of new maps are sort of coming out of um, archives and, uh, and and coming back to life and and I think that is one of the biggest trends at the moment actually and uh, and, and also how maps are being used a lot for um, decoration and uh, and as sort of like a lifestyle choice it's, it's a strange thing but um, <laughs> as, as I said there's, there's, as we were talking about before there's lots of people passionate about maps and uh, and I think maps are more than just something they use it's, uh, it's something that they have in their lives <laughs> We're coming towards the top of the programme. I wondered if I could ask you to take me to one or two of the uh, items you, uh, that, that excite you most or that you're proudest of selling here at Stafford. Uh, one of the things that we have been concentrating a little bit of late, uh, because we're trying to recover the heritage of the company, which um, maybe in the last few years has been not so much lost, but perhaps a little out of focus. <laughs> or it hasn't been the focus of the company, perhaps, of the last few years. And... Um, but we decided now to to perhaps bring it back to life and and make sure that people are aware of who we have been and and, and what the history of the company was. And so one of the things that we've done is uh, in conjunction with the uh, Royal Geographical Society, who have a magnificent library that I recommend to anybody to go and visit in um, Kensington Gore. I think they might add, let you go and visit and uh, and show you around. Uh, they don't only have maps and books; they also have. Um, Curiosities like um, Livingstone's chair and uh, Ptolemy Atlas is absolutely fantastic, absolutely incredible. Anyway, uh, they they happen to have um, lots of maps that were made by Stanford's um, back in the um, 1860s, 1870s. Um, it's a huge archive. Um, sadly, we didn't keep an archive here in the shop, so... Um, We've been there, we've discovered these maps, we've, um, and we're starting to print them here ourselves. And um, I think it's, uh, I, I find them fascinating. I think it's a, it's a great thing to have and, and to be able to bring back and, and show people um, all these maps that were made back in time. And they were basically the most, um, you know, some of the most impressive things at the time. We're looking at a couple of uh, map display units right now. Can we go back to the, this one here, the Eastern Hemisphere in one circle and then a companion uh, page poster at the Western Hemisphere. And uh, let's see what the differences are. There's uh, a big country called Arabia on this one. Well, you do have... This is 1888, and you do have... Um, these mountains here, for example, are quite fun. Um, that's the Kong Mountains, which don't exist. And in fact, what? <laughs> they, they don't exist at all. And uh, at the time, they, they were pretty much a myth. Um, uh, but nobody had explored that part properly at the time. And um, and they had been mentioned by somebody in the book. And uh, and there they are. And they they appear in most of the maps of the time. <laughs> uh, yeah, maps are full of these uh, these quirks and wonderful things. Um, I'm pretty sure there's some islands somewhere that don't exist, never existed, and um, they they stayed in maps until. As late as the 70s, I think. Um, absolutely fascinating. <laughs> Apart from this, um, is, there, is there a convention on? Uh, is, is there any convention on which country goes in the middle of the map? Um, not really. I suppose uh, maps are always cut in one of the two big oceans. Um, I suppose just so you can um, keep the land all together. Um, you don't have to break continents or things like that. So generally, they are either. Pacific Centre or Atlantic Centre. So it's going to be American-centric or Europe-centric? Pretty much. <laughs> or actually, I wouldn't... I think 
China would make it more in the middle, if um, in a in a Pacific Center one, perhaps. <laughs> so, so Australia, in fact. Australia yeah, makes it really to the middle in a, in a Pacific Centre. Um, yeah, I mean, map projections are, are a fascinating subject in themselves. Um, I'm sure you know the um, Peters projection map. Um, it's basically all these maps, flat maps in particular, um, are always um, an interpretation of something that originally was round and it always going to distort what you have in one way or another. Uh, the traditional way is to distort it um, in size. Um, in order to keep the shape of the continent uh, the same as you see um, on the globe. Um, but then Peters uh, was a um, cartographer that wanted to show how um, how maps had been showing a, a view of the world that perhaps could be associated with um, with a Eurocentric or, or you know, uh, the Western world being sort of the center of the world, so to speak. America, um, the US, um, the UK, you know. Europe in general and what he did is he did a completely different version of, um, of a map where what he did is uh, be true to the um, to the relative size of the countries while distorting the shapes and then you can see how Brazil for example is, is much bigger than you would normally see it in, a, in another map and um, I should explain what we're looking at is a map of the world and essentially anything in the northern hemisphere is squashed flatter uh, Canada is about the same height in totality as uh, the United States Mexico is much longer than uh, both of them and, and Brazil are t- twice the size of uh, either of them uh, Russia's a big flat pancake at the top Australia's a, a dangly thing uh, yes so basically I mean it's just try to show how you know Africa and South America in fact in landmass are, are much bigger than we normally keep in mind and, um, and and you can see how this could have political and, and you know socioeconomic uh, significance <laughs> yes I can, I can the national psychology has got to be altered by this isn't it <laughs> yes completely um, well there's um, there's lots to, to look at here and an entire shops worth of maps and guide we haven't even touched guidebooks but there's a whole other episode we have to drift away and uh, go on our travels for those curious to find out more we should probably name the address and give the website and all that jazz yes of course um well the website is www.stanfords with an n and an f <laughs> uh, stanfords.co.uk and uh, you can find us in um, in london we are at um, 12 to 14 long acre which is basically bang in the middle in between um leicester square station and covent garden station and um, you can find us in Bristol in 29 Corn Street. Word of advice if you're coming via Covent Garden Tube. I rather foolhardily decided not to wait for the elevators and did the 193 steps before doing this interview. It's only by uh, a close shave that we managed to do the interview at all. Um, <laughs> I don't know that I'm going to be able to ascend any stairs today. Yeah, I recommend uh, Leicester Square generally. <laughs> <laughs> David Montero, thanks very much. Oh, thank you. Thank you for coming. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to David Mantera. Thanks to, to Becca Evans, Bernie Barkley and Mark Barr. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe.